you know, thou shalt have a children's pastor and a student pastor and have connect groups on Sunday nights at 6 and have children's ministries and there, there's, there's nothing there. Why? We're going to get to that later. But obviously the church is called to reach people of all ages, of all walks of life, um, and people learn on different levels at different ages. So therefore it would be irresponsible of the church to not have a children's ministry, a student ministry. It would be irresponsible. So therefore, in, in the best discernment that we have, we, we have to step in and do our part to raise up the next generation. But we're going to talk today about whose job it really is. And it's the families. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, Father figure, mother figure, stepmom, stepdad, whatever category you fall in, future mom, future dad, it is your responsibility to disciple and lead in the spiritual formation of your child. All right, we're done. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Amen. Hey, we might get out there before the coffee truck leaves this morning. Um, and I want to be careful this morning because this could easily turn into a parenting sermon, and it's not. Okay? I'm going to say a lot about parenting, but it's not a parenting sermon, I promise. Um, so bear with me. We're going to get to some application for all of us as a church, whether you have kids or not, at the end. Um, but let's approach God's Word with this thought this morning that... It is the family's responsibility to lead in the discipleship and the spiritual formation of their children. Can we pray and ask God for wisdom and ask God to give us obedience to his word and allow it to, allow it, it to instruct how we live our lives today? Lord, we love you so much. God, give us wisdom as we open your word. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would give us obedience, um, that we would be quick to change when we see something that does not line up with what you say in our lives. Um, God, help us as a church, Lord, to, to, to really grasp this concept of that we as a church want to partner with families. And while it is the family's responsibility to lead in the spiritual formation of their children, Lord, as a church, it would be irresponsible and wrong of us not to partner with them. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have two containers this morning, um, I came in all the kids. Pretty much any time we have uh, kids, I have object lessons or games or whatever. Um, and pretty much the first thing they say when they come in is, what's that for? And I say, well, are you going to stay for church? They say, yeah. I say, well, stick around and you'll find out what it's for. I had adults do that this morning. Um, I typically have seven-year-olds do that. So whatever that means to you, I don't know. Um, but I have this container here this morning and each one of these ping pong balls represents one hour okay and we're gonna get to what that means here in a moment um, <clears throat> however I want to go over some statistics any of you like statistics you know I like statistics I'm a, I'm a huge baseball fan um, and the game of baseball is all about statistics and 
wins above replacement, and some of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, on base percentage, batting average, all that stuff, it's all about statistics, and I am a junkie for it. Whenever I coached baseball in Baltimore, I would sit on our iPad and on the, on the scorebook, and I would go through, and I would find little things about, like, what were the statistics like if, we, if our pitcher threw a strike on the first pitch versus if he threw a ball? And I would look at weird things like that. And I'm kind of a nerd about stuff like that. But I looked up some statistics. And last week I shared that in 2018 there was a study done. And it showed that the average American family spends 37 minutes of quality time together per day. Now, they didn't specifically define what quality time is. But throw your family in that situation. Whatever quality time is for you, the average American family spends 37 minutes doing that on a weekday. That would be a hundred, and it turns into 160 minutes per day on the weekend. So that, that's good. Obviously, people are home from work, people are home from school, get to spend more time together. On average, each family, now maybe you're like, well, where, where on earth is this for me? Um, the average family in America spends seven days of vacation together. Is that, does that seem about right to anybody? Anybody's like, I wish I had seven days of vacation, right? <laughs> But if we add all that up together, that's about 608 hours of quality time per year. Okay? Whatever that quality time looks like for you, maybe that's sitting around your dinner table talking about your day. Um, or maybe it's sitting outside in your backyard or whatever it is for you. Every, every family is different. Um, but 608 hours per year. But let's be generous because I know we have good godly families at Keystone Church. Let's be generous and add some more time to that. So let's add time spent in the car together, which is about one hour per day. Time eating together, that's about 30 minutes per day, or 182 hours per year. Time doing chores. You ever spend time together doing chores? How many of you are like, I cannot be around anybody else when I'm doing chores? Me and Julia don't do chores together real well. Um, we do them differently. Um, so like if we're cleaning or something like that, I got to go to one room and she's got to go to another because I have my process, she has her process, and we've just found in the four years we've been married, we found it better not to try to mix those cleaning processes together. Um, uh, parents, uh, the bedtime routine, okay? Um, maybe you're like, kids, go to bed. I don't want to see you anymore tonight, and I'll come kiss you goodnight whenever you're ready. Uh, but most families, I would believe that you're with your kids as you're getting them ready for bed or whatever. Again, I don't have kids yet, so maybe I'm completely off base, but we'll throw 30 minutes a day in there for that too, which is 182 hours per year. So in one year, we can say that parents could have roughly, on average, 1,100 hours per year to spend time and invest in their kids. I, yes, I put 1,100 ping pong balls in this plastic tower. This represents every single hour, parent, that you have to invest in your child. Spiritually, socially, emotionally, whatever it is. Now, I'm not advocating today that you spend 1,100 hours per year discipling your child and reading the Bible to them. That's probably just not going to work. Studies show that it only takes about 480 hours to learn a language that would be considered easy. 
only 720 hours to learn a language that would be considered difficult. And you have 1,100 hours in a year. So don't feel like you have to spend every quaking minute of every day that you have a free time hanging out with your kid, reading the Bible, or doing our Keystone Family Talk, or doing discussion questions, or doing a Bible study. That, that's, that, that's not the point. But this is the amount of time, on average, roughly, that you have to invest in your child. Then some people are like, well, what do I bring my kid to church for? Like, why do we have a children's pastor? Why do we have kids' classes and Sunday schools and then they can learn and things like this? Well, at Keystone Church, we have one Sunday morning service per week. Then we have our connect groups. So the teens have two opportunities to meet. The kids have one. That's right. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning. So... The church has about 107 hours per year to invest spiritually in your child. 107 and a half. I didn't cut a ping pong ball in half. I just thought that would be wasteful. Um, But 107 hours per year versus 1,100. And some people bring their kid to church every single Sunday and wonder why when they turn 18 and can make their own decisions and do their own thing, or the kid thinks they make their own decision. They wonder why they'd never come back to church. They wonder why they're out living completely opposite of the, the way they were expected to, the way they learned to in church, the way the church taught them to. And they wonder. The church has... <clears throat> 107 and a half hours on average here at Keystone to invest in your child. And again, I'm not advocating that what the church does doesn't matter. But what I'm advocating today is what you do as a family is the most important thing in your life. It's the most important thing in your life. It's the most important thing in your child's life. It's the most important thing in their future. It's the most important thing in your grandchild's life, in your great-grandchild's life, in your great-great-great-grandchild's life. What you do with your 1,100 hours, maybe you're lucky. Maybe you got 1,500 hours in a year. Maybe you only have 800 hours in a year because of your work schedule. Whatever it is, we have to take advantage of it. We have to take advantage of it and use it to our advantage. So... I think we can all agree that it's pretty ridiculous for, the, for anybody to think that it's the church's job solely for the spiritual formation of their child. It, it just wouldn't make sense. <clears throat> so let's look at God's Word. We're going to look at some different passages and some examples of how God instructed the family to lead in the discipleship of the next generation. We're going to start Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This uh, passage of scripture is often referred to as the Shema. And that's a Hebrew word. It literally just means um, to hear. This is something that would describe, kind of summarize what an Orthodox Jew would believe. Now in Jesus' day, this, this is being part of the Pentateuch, one of the first five books of the Bible, this was the foundation of their faith. The Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It's the greatest commandment. Jesus said the second is like, and I love your neighbor as yourself. And these words which I command you shall, today shall be in your heart. So it begins with, with their belief about God. Okay, what is it that we believe? That's our foundation. And now upon our foundation, growing from that is how we practice and live our lives out. What does that look like every day? Because we believe this, what does it look like every day? They say teach it diligently to your children. Talk about it at home. Talk about it when you're walking or driving. Talk about it when you go to bed. Talk about it when you wake up. Allow it. It says you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Allow it to guide your mind in everything that you do and allow it to guide your hands in everything that you do. Allowing God's word to literally instruct your every movement. It says you shall write it on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It should be very obvious in your home what you believe. That doesn't mean you have to get a stencil and write, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord above your front door so everybody knows when they come in. I mean, if you want to do that, that's fine. It's up to you. Um, That doesn't mean that's what it has to be. But how you live your life, how you interact, how you love, how you serve, it should be incredibly obvious in your home to your children, to your spouse, to your friends, to your acquaintances that come over for dinner, to anybody who is there, it must be blatantly obvious what you believe. Because it carries out into our practice. Next, let's look at Joshua chapter 4 and verse number 20. Don't feel like you have to turn to all these. They're all going to be on the screen behind me. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. At this point, the children of Israel had wandered in the desert for 40 years, and they'd come to the Jordan River, and they needed to cross the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land. So what God did, he, he told the priests to come down, and as soon as they stepped foot in the water, the Jordan River stopped. The Jordan River flows south to north, uh, all the way down to the Dead Sea. And the Jordan River stopped flowing. So think about what that meant for all the water south of that, all the way to the Dead Sea. The entire Jordan River dried up. There was no flow of water anymore. So the children of Israel could cross once again over on dry land into the promised land that God had given them. 
So to remember this, God instructed them to take 12 stones, one for each tribe, out of the Jordan River and take with them. So it says, Joshua set those stones up in Gilgal. And then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. You know, the Jordan River, it can, its banks can overflow, and it can be ex- an extremely wide river and raging river. And when they would look at it, they say, that Jordan right there, they crossed on dry land. The river kind of disappeared for, for a little while, and they crossed over. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. It's like saying, hey, God did it once, he's going to do it again. That all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. What the nation of Israel had just experienced at Jordan and had experienced 40 years before that, whenever they were kids, the adults who crossed over the Jordan were the kids who crossed the Red Sea. What they had experienced was wondrous miracles. And God was like, this is only the beginning. And I want you to be able to look at this monument, at these stones, at this memorial, and say, God did it then, and he'll do it again. So they took the 12 stones and set them up, and it was for the sole purpose. He doesn't say, so that everybody can, can see what God did. It would say so that when your children see what it was, then you have a story to tell them. That was the reason for it. Why? So that all the people of the earth may know that God did wondrous things. It started with the family. It started with the family. In Psalm 78, in verses 1 through 7, uh, Psalm 78, it's, a, it's kind of a historical overview of what the nation of Israel had experienced, what they went through, what God had brought them through. And it, again, kind of starts with the foundation of, of how they're supposed to pass this belief and this information and this teaching down from one generation to the next. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your words, uh, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. Why? That the generation to come might know them. The children uh, who should who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. This begins with the reminder that families are to teach what God has done from generation to generation. Why? Because we live in a hopeless world. Everywhere you look. Hopeless. 
If you watch the news, the coronavirus is literally the worst thing that has ever happened to mankind in the world. It's never going to end. It's never going to go away. It seems hopeless because that is what sin brings into the world. That is what darkness brings into the world. And that is what the devil wants you to believe about your family. But God says, if you declare from generation to generation my praises, my wonderful works, the generation to come will set their hope in me. That's why. Because in a hopeless world, in a hopeless time, we have something, we have someone to set our hope in. Someone who is faithful, someone who is never changing, someone who will never go away, someone who will never turn his back. We have somewhere to set our hope. That they may set their hope in God. Proverbs 22.6 says this, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You must do your part to train up your child. It's not going to happen passively. That phrase, he will not depart from it, sometimes gets interpreted as a promise that, you know, if I, if I do my part, if we're in church every week, if we have Bible studies at home together, then guaranteed my kid's going to be a pastor someday or my kid's going to be a missionary or whatever it is. But that, you're missing the point. It's the principle that matters. He will not depart from it. That phrase, it literally means to turn it off. To turn it off. Your child may not always do what they should biblically, as you have taught them. Or may not do what they should do in how you have raised them to. But they will never be able to turn off God's word from their hearts and minds. If you invest in the spiritual formation of your child, when they, were, when they are old and you're no longer there, chirping in their ear, they will not be able to turn it off. Because God's word promises that it will not return void. It will not be for nothing. And no matter where your kids end up, no matter what's going on in their lives right now, if you have done your part of investing God's word in their life, they cannot turn it off. They can't. It's there. Like, a, like in 1 Corinthians 13, when it says sounding brass or tinkling cymbal, it literally means like the squeaking of a rusty gate. It's there. Can't make it go away. Just over and over and over again. They cannot turn it off. Let's apply this a little bit more specifically. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The phrase bring them up means, means to bring them to maturity. The word nurture means discipline. The word admonition means teaching. So essentially, father, father figure, disciple, 
your child. There's no, it doesn't get any more plain as far as commandments go in Scripture. Fathers, disciple your child. George Herbert, he was a poet and a priest in the Church of England in the 1600s, said this, One father is more than a hundred schoolmasters. One father is more than a hundred schoolmasters. We wonder what's wrong with the world today. Look at statistics for, statistics for broken homes and fatherless homes. And I'm not here today to, to diminish uh, single parents who are doing their absolute best to raise their child. But the Bible is clear. The most important person in a child's life is their father. And I'll speak plainly about that because it's what Scripture says. The most important person in a child's life is their father. Inventor Charles Kettering said, he was an Ohio State Buckeye, by the way. That's right. Just throw that in there. He said, every father should remember that one day his son will follow his example, not his advice. Every father should remember one day that his son will follow his example, not his advice. There's been many times where I have wondered what I should do, and I didn't need to ask for advice because I already knew what my dad would do, and I knew what he would say. So follow your example. So follow your advice too. But your, if your example is not worth following, they're for sure not going to ask for your advice. Every father should remember that one day his son will follow his example, not his advice. 2 Timothy 1.5 Paul, writing to Timothy, says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded is also in you. Timothy's greatest spiritual influences in his life were his mother and his grandmother. Here's Timothy. Of the, one of the books, two of the books of the Bible were written to Timothy, a pastor of a church, and are used in the canon of Scripture. This pastor, the two most influential people in his spiritual life were his mother and his grandmother. And Paul says that it was a true and genuine faith which first dwelt in them and now has been passed to you because of their example and because of their investment in you. Now moms, while it is dad's responsibility to lead the family spiritually, you, I promise, because I've experienced it, you will be the greatest spiritual influence that your child has. Because there's no greater picture on earth of the love of Christ than the love of a mother for her child. There's no better picture of it. Napoleon said this, let France have good mothers and she will have good sons. Abraham Lincoln said that no man is poor who has a godly mother. 
doesn't matter what you have in this life to offer your child physically, moms, offer them something spiritually. And they'll be richer than they ever could be otherwise. Moms, dads, it is vital, vital, vital for you to lead in the discipleship and the spiritual formation of your child. So what does this mean for families? How do we apply this? Number one, it means you have a responsibility. Okay, and the Bible says clearly that whenever you have, you recognize that you have a responsibility and the Bible gives you a responsibility, that it says this in James chapter, sorry to go back to James, I know we were there for a while, but we're going to go back to James one more time, James 4.17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you ignore the responsibility to disciple and train up your child in the way that he should go, as far as scripture commandment, if you ignore that responsibility, you are living in sin. God's word says it plainly. You have a responsibility. So how can you do this? What are some ideas? Number one, take advantage of the time that you have. And stop complaining about the time that you don't. Life happens. If you say, well, no, we're not going to go to work. We're not going to go to school. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to stay home together as a family all the time. Well, I mean, how are you going to buy dinner? How are you going to pay for the house? How are you going to do these things? It's your responsibility. You have to provide and take care of your family in that way. So stop complaining about the time that you don't have. Because guess what? Everybody don't got time. My wife loves that sentence. Like, that was the worst grammar in the world. I'm going to say it again. Everybody don't got time. But you do have this much time. Average. Maybe you got a little less, maybe you got a lot more. I don't know. Take advantage of the time that you have. If all you have is 37 minutes of quality time a day, take advantage of it. At the very least, that's like 600 hours a year. At the very least. Take advantage of the time that you have. But if all you do with the time that you have is just sit and watch TV, or kid sits and plays a video game or put the iPad in the kid's hands and I know some of your kids are on iPads right now it's okay I'm not saying anything about that don't worry but you got 1100 hours divided by three I mean that's about what three hours a day ish What are you doing in that amount of time to spiritually invest in your child? To let it be known that based on what you believe, it is being practiced in your life. It is obvious that you are living for something, for someone, and that it is the most important thing in our lives. Take advantage of the time that you have. In this season of life, I've said this several times, 
And I'm not a parent. I don't know what it was like for my kid to go to school one day and then uh, be a full-time homeschooling parent the next and have to work a full-time job. I don't know what that was like. I know, I can, I can imagine it was very difficult. But I, one thing I do know, there was a time whenever we didn't know if school was going to be closed for two weeks and this was just like a little early spring break and families were just hanging out together. And One thing I do know from all this, families have been given the gift of a little extra time, even if it was five extra minutes a day. Still more. Take advantage of the time that you have. Stop complaining about the time that you don't have. Number two, take advantage of the resources at your disposal. You can use our, our Keystone Family Talks. I don't have one for today. We're going to send one out digitally. But I mean, the family talk for today is going to be, hey, guess what? Spend time as a family. Like, hang out. Like, maybe, maybe decide when you're going to study the Bible together as a family. Or when you're going to have a family worship jam session in Carrington's, right? They're like the only family who can do stuff like that. Well, in the Solings, probably, yeah. But, like, decide what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. Put your kids in front of the iPad and turn on the Keystone Kids service. Put them in front of the iPad for spiritual formation? What? Yeah. I'm fun. I'll be on there. I'll keep them entertained for 27 minutes. Discussion question, guys, that we send home from church. Technology. There's Bible apps. YouVersion has a kid's Bible app. How many of you knew that YouVersion had a kid's Bible app? And it's got, like, games that they can go through and do along with the Bible stories. It's awesome. It's called the Bible app for kids. YouTube. There are so many resources on YouTube. I know there's a lot of dangerous stuff on YouTube as well. But if you get YouTube kids, a lot of that's protected. Subscribe to church pages. Subscribe to, you know, Saddleback Kids. I use a lot of Saddleback Kids videos in our videos. And they have short little Bible stories that are like four minutes long. And they're funny. They're entertaining. Whatever it might be, put a five-minute video on for them. You're investing in their spiritual life and formation. Sit down and watch the kids' video with them. You might think it's funny, too. Listen to good music together as a family. And there are so many other ideas. These are just some things that I wrote in. Whatever fits in your context in your family. Number one, take advantage of the time that you have. Number two, take advantage of the resources at your disposal. Number three, be an example. Plato said the best way of training the young is to train yourself at the same time. Not to admonish them, but to be seen never doing that of which you would admonish them. Practice what you preach. Be an example. Number four, have conversations. Be willing to answer the hard questions. Especially as your kids get older, middle school, high school, be willing to have the hard conversations. Not bringing 
judgment or punishment, although sometimes that is going to be absolutely necessary. But be willing within those times to have the difficult conversations. Not to say this is the way it is because I said so, but this is the way it is because this is what God teaches us and this is what we believe about him and his word. That is what instructs our life. Take advantage of the time that you have. Take advantage of resources at your disposal. Be an example and have conversations. And hear me. You are not alone in this responsibility. You're not. And it might seem like it sometimes because it might seem like, well, nobody knows what it's like at 9.30 at night in my house. But you are not alone in this responsibility. So what does this mean for our church family? You know, if we're truly going to be a church family, then we all have to look at this as our responsibility. Dan Lavaglia wrote in Relational Children's Ministry, he said this, <coughs> excuse me, I believe that as kid influencers of all kinds are used by God to know, love, and serve children, these children will increasingly come to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ. This, in turn, will overflow into the lives of their peers, parents, and others who cross paths with them as fully devoted disciples of Christ. Now listen to this. My point is that the hard work of disciple-making is not something any one person is accountable for in the family of God. It is the responsibility of the community. Everyone. Everyone has a role and responsibility. Children's ministry that integrates multiple spheres of relational worlds is needed because discipleship is not a fabricated program wherein we check off a list. It is an inherently relational, requiring investment in the lives of people. Everyone in our community has a role and a responsibility in discipling your child. Now, while you are the one who's going to stand before God one day and answer for how you led your family, that does not let us all off the hook. We have a responsibility. So you don't have kids like me, or you have kids who have kids now, or you have kids that are in college, or whatever it is. What do you do? Number one, view your family as your family. If we're going to be a church family, view your family as your family. When you see kids, teens, and other families, do you see your brother and sister's kid or teen? Do you see your very own brother or sister? Because biblically, that's what we are. We're family. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. So if we are going to be a family, view your family as your family and take responsibility. Number two, serve. Like, but I hate kids. Or I'm sorry, there's kids in here. We don't use the word hate. I strongly dislike kids. God has given you gifts, talents, abilities, now, whether you like controlling a crowd in a room of kids or not, 
God has still given you gifts and abilities that can be used to invest in future generations. That doesn't mean you stand up and teach the lesson to the kids. But he has given you gifts and abilities to invest in future generations. So allow God to use those gifts that he has given you to influence kids and teens directly in the church context. Number one, view your family as your family. Number two, serve. Number three, give financially. Many of you were involved in our legacy offering last year that provided funds to purchase some great upgrades for our children's ministry. Many of you have already given. And things like that will come up over the years, and and we need to be faithful to continue to do so. But we use tools in ministry. And those tools cost money. And we have a budget, a church budget, for a reason. And when you give, therefore helping us meet that church budget, therefore it enables us to acquire tools that help in the ministries that we do for your family. So give financially. But give personally. Do you know a family that needs help? that has kids and you don't? Maybe they just need a date night. Maybe they just need somebody to come hang out so they can just go have a nice dinner at cookout or something, you know? (laughs) Maybe they need a mentor in discipling their child. Maybe you're a grandparent and your kids are long gone, but you know somebody who is lost and they don't know what weighs up what weighs down and they don't know what they're doing in this thing called discipling their child be a mentor to them help them teach them <clears throat> be the babysitter for the night out be the mentor be the encourager so number one view your family as your family number two serve number three give number four pray pray Pray, pray for the young people in our church. Pray for the parents in our church. Because there, there is no parenting group, parenting book or group or anything like that that teaches you how to raise a godly child in 2020. The Bible's all the best we got. Now that's pretty good. The Bible's not bad. That's, that's a pretty good resource. But parents have never done this before. Pray for them faithfully. And number five, keep them accountable. Keep those families accountable. Ask them, hey, how much time do you guys spend as a family this week? You guys doing a family Bible study? Did you guys watch the, the kids' service? Keep each other accountable because it matters. People aren't made to live alone. People are made to live in community. Even God himself within the Trinity lives in community. He's one God, but he's three people. And then he made Adam. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. So he made him a helper, a companion. Community. We have to keep each other accountable.
because we all have a role and a responsibility in discipling the next generation. Church, let's take advantage of our 107 and a half hours. I don't want to diminish this because it's vital. It's important. Church family, whatever there are kids around, it's important for you in this amount of time to invest, to give and to serve and to love and to be an example. I don't want to diminish this. But I do want to magnify this. Because families, if you do your job from generation to generation to generation, children will rise up and declare the praises of the Lord and His wondrous works and all the amazing things that He did in your life and in their lives and in their kids' lives. 1,100 hours a year. What are you going to do with it? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, our world tells us that we're busy, we don't have time, that we can't, that we have to do it this way or that way or whatever it is. Lord, help us just to do it your way. Help us to take advantage of the time that we have. Lord, help these families to take advantage of the time that they have to invest in their children. God, help us as a church in the even less time that we have to take advantage of it and to not waste one minute or one hour. So that the generation to come will know you. That they will set their hope in you because you are the only place that hope is found. God, help what we do to be rooted and grounded in what we believe. So that we can practically live out who you are what you would have us to do. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at keystonerdu.church. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Keystone, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Durham and all around the world. Visit keystonerdu.church to get involved.